Hey guys, we're back. Season seven. Let's go. We are finally bringing the most requested topic to the masses. It starts with a G and it rhymes <laughs> with phonetics. <laughs> this season is all about FTD genetics. We dig deep. We talk about hard things and we divulge a lot, a lot. We're so excited to share these touching stories with all of you and the insights we've learned along the way. We have expert chats and most importantly, we have hope. There is a lot of hope. Because of genetic testing, research in the field is growing and we're so happy that we can share it with you all. Genetics can be a really scary topic, but with support like Learn FTD, there's information to help. Right. Learn FTD is a website that provides a wealth of knowledge in the genetic department and it's easy to digest. Shout out that website one more time. <laughs> it's learnftd.com slash RM. That's www.learnftd.com slash RM. My name is Maria. And I'm Rachel. And we're the hosts of Remember Me. Our podcast is dedicated to preserving the memories of those diagnosed with dementia. We hope this episode helps you feel more connected, provides a deeper understanding, and allows you to learn to accept the good. Always, always accept the good. This is Remember Me. Today, we have the pleasure of having an incredible FTD advocate on our podcast. Her name is Wanda, and Wanda is here to speak about her mom, Sarah. Welcome, Wanda. Hi, Wanda. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I, I just can't tell you how nice it is to talk about my mom. Her name was Sarah, and we called her Sarah Nell. You always knew you were in good company when you had the second name. Oh, I love that. So let's start from the beginning. So what was that first interaction or situation where you started to scratch your head and say, something's not right with my mom? Well, I was 28. This happened 35 years ago. And uh, I was to deliver my first child. And it was so odd. She wasn't enthusiastic about it. And yet she was such a warm and loving uh, mom. I just knew she would be thrilled. And she just didn't ask many questions. She, she didn't seem engaged in what I was dealing with or having a baby and the excitement of her first grandchild. So I started to think, hmm, you know, maybe she's going through menopause. She was still very young at the time. And then it all came to kind of what I call the finale. We had Thanksgiving that year brought home my beautiful baby girl to share with the family. And so like most Thanksgivings at our home, we um, would get up early, put the bird in, talk, you know, do the side dishes. And we were hustling, bustling, getting food on the table. We did that. And then we all clean up the kitchen, which takes hours, take out the trash. And we all sat down to watch football. And um, she walks through the kitchen. She had gone outside, picked up the garbage bags of trash, walked through the kitchen into the living room, 
and stands in front of the television and said, I'm so disappointed in you children. How could you not help me make the Thanksgiving meal? And we were in shock. We couldn't believe that she had forgotten the entire morning. And it, it just was such a chilling moment to realize that it wasn't, you know, hormonal or anything. It was a, a forgetting of a, a day, hours and hours of preparation. And Wanda, did you or anybody else say like, hey, mom, you know, go, go take a look in the kitchen. Everything's prepared. You know, and what was her response? Well, the push pack was pretty brutal for her. It was like, you know, eight people all saying, you know, well, don't you remember this? Don't you remember the pumpkin pie? Don't you remember the lemon meringue? You know, we did this and the meringue did that. And, you know, the turkey was too heavy. We had to get someone to pull it out of the oven. And she could not remember any of it. She walked away with those big trash bags and her shoulders slumping forward. And she just took the trash out, went to her room. We didn't see her for hours. It, it was terrifying. And what, what was the next step? I'm sure you guys all looked at each other with wide eyes. Like, what do we do now? What kind of, what did your family do? We didn't talk about it for a little while. I think we were in such shock. Um, I flew back to uh, California with my infant and we began to talk about, okay, we, we've got to get our head wrapped around this. And so there's always one or two in the family that seem to be like the take charge people. And that's uh, right. <laughs> I don't know why it's me, but uh, <laughs> I know why is it me too? So I got busy, found a neurologist, and we went to the local neurologist, and it was a horrible experience for her, for my mom and for us. And how old was she at this time? She was 52. Wow. Same age as my mom. Very vibrant, a beautiful, warm spirit. She would do anything for anyone. But, you know, this was in the 1980s, around 82. And so there wasn't as much information or knowledge as there is today. But the neurologist was just, his bedside manner was, was so inappropriate to her. He checked her eyes, nose, throat, he'd stick out your tongue, say, ah. And then he proceeded to say, well, you got Alzheimer's, you're young, you're probably not going to live beyond five years and have a nice life. Wow. <laughs> this is Maria's time to shine. So I'm sure you I, have follow-up questions, Maria. I just, I, I was hoping for something different knowing that, I mean, I don't know. It, it, I, I'm always fascinated by how things progress over time. Like, you know, they called it Pick's disease in the nineties and things like that. So I, I was wondering if they even knew a ton about Alzheimer's at that time in the eighties. Cause I know Alzheimer's it's just like blown up and people have really started to understand it a little bit more, but wow, for him to say Alzheimer's and then deliver it in such a way. I mean, what do you even say back to that? Yeah. What did you do? My sister and I, and my mom, we all stood up, turned around, walked out the door. I mean, there wasn't anything else to say. He was busy. He didn't have time. And you have to understand this was in the 1980s. So there really was very little about the disease. We then took her to, uh, we brought her to Scripps out here in San Diego 
to a neurologist who did a complete MRI and went through everything and began to lay out, you know, here's what I'm seeing, here's what I'm thinking, you know, but during that window of time, everybody was Alzheimer's. And I still see today, you know, people are all stuck in the Alzheimer bucket, yet many of us aren't. Uh, many of our families have the, what is it? There's now 70 genes that are causing dementia, you know, so I'm, I'm very pleased. My mom was such an advocate for research and was willing to do whatever she could. I can remember, <laughs> I can remember her telling me, you know, if there's anything out there, don't even hesitate. If they want my arm or my leg, they can have it. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. I have so many questions, Rachel. So do I, but I'm going to go first. Okay, fine. I'm feeling a little bossy. Okay. So during this time, you know, the trash bag and then the neurologist, were you guys seeing more behavioral changes, speech changes, both? What was sort of like her presentation? Well, she lived alone and most of us lived a thousand miles away. So we weren't there in her daily life. It became more apparent when I got the phone call, she was working at the local hospital. And I got the call that said, your mom's losing weight, she's forgetting to eat. And you need to fly in to see this thing has changed. So that's when the behavior came. And we realized she wasn't driving her car, she was walking to work every day in cold weather. So we weren't up close and personal to see the changes. It's hard to see them over the phone. I'm really curious about your mom's interpretation of what is going on at this point, because that was my question too. Yeah. Like, was she aware? Similarly, my mom was in the room with the first set of neurologists who had terrible bedside manner that told her you have FTD, you know, you have such and such amount of time to live, but we think you have ALS. So you have much less time. And my mom then repeated on the way home, I am going to die in a year. I'm going to die in a year. So I'm haunted by that. And I, I really hope you think maybe your mom didn't, wasn't aware. What was her? She was very much aware. You know, they're different views, but I think even though she had the disease for about six years, there were moments where I knew she knew what was going on around her and she knew me. But it was just like the computer wasn't working. The connectivity just wasn't there. And when the Scripps doctor started explaining the memory and the test results, my mom knew enough to go, well, wait a minute, it's really hormonal. You know, maybe it's my blood sugar, maybe my blood pressure. And so Dr. Otis was very sweet. And she said, well, let me check on that, you know, and the nurse took her out and checked her blood pressure. And, and then Dr. Otis proceeded to tell us, you know, the scope of what was going on. Um, we were at a real advantage during that time in that we had uh, Dr. Katzman here in San Diego. He was at UCSD. And I got to know him because my husband and I were very active in building the nonprofit organization for the local. And so, you know, he would talk with me about things. And he said, you know, your mom's case is just a little bit different. So that was the first inkling that I had that there might be a little bit something. And my mom liked Dr. Katzman. So that was really good, but he was in research. 
And how did things proceed, you know, after seeing a much kinder doctor that wanted to work with you and figure things out? Like, how did things go forward? Did you move her in with you? Like, how did, how did you manage it? Well, I had two children at the time, and then I gave birth to a third one. So I convinced her, hey, mom, I really need your help. You know, it's, it's a heavy load. We're busy out here. And so she moved in to really help me. And she did for, for quite a long time. But the disease was so terrible. And it took so much of her and it took pieces of her at different points in time to the point that I had three of them in diapers. I had my mom, my toddler and my infant. And it, it just people have no idea how hard it is. No, they don't. They don't. I lived with my mom when my son was born. And I remember we would use, you know, those little baby utensils as he's starting to learn to eat. And we started using them for my mom because she was starting to struggle with choking. We were looking at daycares for my son and for my mom. And you're just like, nobody knows what this is like. Like, it shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't. And, you know, the time I was teaching my daughter new words, how to speak, how to, you know, learning her alphabets. And here my mom was unlearning so much of her life. And, you know, she was such a wonderful person. She would sit and try to read books with the kids and cuddle them. And, you know, so much of her abilities were slowly fading. We were very fortunate in 1986, there really had not been a publication on Alzheimer's disease at all. And Life Magazine called and asked us if they could come in and kind of do an expose on what it's like. So they did. And oh my gosh, for two weeks, they were at my house. Can you imagine at six wow. in the morning? Oh, <laughs> no one needs to see what happens in my house. No, yeah. no. <laughs> and they stayed till seven o'clock at night. And I told them, I said, I'm, I'm happy to do this. But please do not take any pictures that would reflect poorly on her. Mm-hmm. And they were so sensitive, but um, that was the first national publication. Now you got to love the humor in this. So the publication comes out, it's the swimsuit edition. Wow. <laughs> well, that'll get everyone's attention, right? Oh, yeah. You open it up to the center fold and it's me eight and a half months pregnant. <laughs> that is so cute. I, I love We that, need to though. get our hands on a copy. <laughs> my husband always laughs. He said, you know, my claim to fame is I'm the only man on the face of this earth that has an eight and a half month pregnant woman, a wife on uh, Life magazine. That's so, right. Oh You're the gosh. centerfold. Wow. Wait. So wait. So all this time. We're thinking Alzheimer's disease and she's kind of becoming like the poster child for Alzheimer's disease. Is that a fair assessment? It is. Wow. And how are you rationalizing like the things happening when you didn't even have an understanding of even Alzheimer's? Like, how are you making sense of her behavior and her decline? Like how, like, what did you do? Well, I had Dr. Caspin, which was wonderful. And he had contacted Dr. John Morris out of St. Louis. And Dr. Morris was starting to study families and differences and similarities uh, with individuals who were younger. 
And so I had, you know, a little inkling from them, but the biggest thing is it's kind of like a movie that gets played over and over. I had seen my aunt who had lost her abilities and I heard stories, you know, well, we put her in, she was in a mental institution or this or that, Right, right. you know, so I'd heard stories of relatives back, you know, years ago. So I kind of had that in the back of my mind of, uh uh-oh, what is this? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, you know, is this the same movie I'm going to be just a participant in of all these stories I've heard before? So that that's kind of started me on the journey of thinking, is this more? If there's more than one, you can almost bet that it is more. So that's why we kind of got interested in learning and and really helping researchers uh, with the family tree and with individuals. Now, I don't know if, I don't know how to ask this like delicately. So just forgive my abruptness, but how did you guys finally get to, this isn't Alzheimer's, this is FTD. Actually, that was a long, painful process. So they had these samples and and we go to family reunions and people were so kind. They would just roll up their sleeve and give a tablespoon of blood. I mean, it was really that simple. (laughs) So Dr. Allison Goat had all these samples and they worked on them and worked on them. And finally, I I was in my office and my assistant called and said, you've got to get back from lunch. She said, there's a phone call coming for you at one o'clock. So I come back to the office and the phone call comes in and she connects me and it is Dr. John Morris. And there's a whole team of people in the room. And this was in 2006. And all of a sudden they all yelled together, we found it. And I said, what? And they said, we found it. It is a gene called progranulin. And now we know what it is. Wow. What was your reaction to that? You know, joy. I mean, I was so overwhelmed with just joy because from 1987 to 2006 had been this grind of how can we find more family members, you know, who's willing to help and, and, you know, going all over the country, trying to, you know, connect people. And, you know, it's the old saying, you can't solve a problem until you know what the pro- you identify what the problem is. And so in that moment, things were running through my head. We got it. We, you know, we know this protein at some point in people's lives, this protein decides to like sputter. It doesn't work. It won't produce progranulin. So the cell dies. And so I thought, wow. I just want to give a little context to a listener who might not know this information, but progranulin replacement and my understanding is going to be like the first breakthrough therapy for FTD. So to know that your family, I mean, has like helped facilitate that. How incredible does that make you feel? You know, we all look back in life and we go, wow, that was an aha moment. Mm -hmm. And this just, things just happened. You know, life happens and the right people came into our life, the right people gave. Um, We're one of many, many families. So 
people are very generous in this world of dementia land or Alzheimer's land or whatever it is. And, you know, our generations are the ones that really want knowledge. So um, it's funny how you look back and it's all kind of a string of, wow, how'd that happen? You have such a nice way of saying it. Like, I feel like you're on the accept the good team. Yes. Um, One thing that our listeners and Maria and I, before it happened to us, were always curious about was sort of the end of life and what it looked like. It can be really scary for people if they don't know. And did your mom live with you up until the end? Uh, She did live with me for a very, very long time. When she became incontinent, it got much more difficult. And when her swallowing waned a little bit, it was even harder. And so, you know, there weren't very many uh, facilities and there weren't very many that had Alzheimer's, but I knew the owner of one and we placed her in this care facility. And she was actually in a room with uh, two other women. So there were three of them. And, um, you know, she was there probably, she lived there maybe eight months, but I was terrified. I don't know about you guys, but I just, I had this horrible uh, fear that somebody was going to hurt her. Mm-hmm. And so here I've got these three little kids. I drug them to the, the facility. I mean, we set off so many alarms. You wouldn't believe everybody knew we were there because the alarms were going off. And uh, so she went downhill really fast once we had her admitted, but I had so much fear. I was there every shift change, 11 o'clock at night. I put the kids in bed at eight o'clock and I'm out the door at 11 to do the shift change. But I have a sweet story about her the night she died. Would you guys, do you want to? We would love to. Yes. Yes, please. Do you have tissues with you? Do you have any? uh... I have my shirt. I have my sleeve. I, Maria, we're such moms. We have a shirt. It's fine. We don't need a tissue. So I got a call from the facility and they said, oh, Wanda, you better get up here. Her temperature has gone up and we don't think she'll hold on much longer. So I go up there and my husband's with me. I called the neighbor and they came down and it's the middle of the night. So we go into her room and she's really having a hard time breathing. And so I crawl up in the bed and I'm with her and across the way is Mary, her little sweet mate. Now, a couple of days before this, Mary had grabbed me by the arm and she said, you have to help me. And I said, why Mary? They want me out of your mom's room. They want me to be with other residents who can talk. And she said, I can't, I can't, I have to be here with your mom. So they moved Mary out and I guess she pitched a fit. So they finally had her back in there. So here I am, I come in, I crawl in bed with my mom and I'm holding her and she's hot. So I'm trying to put a warm cloth and soothe her arm and her forehead. And so I'm telling my husband, I said, what do we do? I mean, in a moment like that, you don't know what to do. How do you help someone who can't speak to you? But I looked in my mom's eyes and I knew she knew that I was there. So I told my husband, I said, Psalms 23. (laughs) So he's like looking for the Bible. And I said, oh, no. So I started going through the Bible verse. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thy rod and thy staff, thy comfort me. And she took a big, deep breath and was gone. And so I, you know, I was relieved. But I, I was heartbroken because she was such a wonderful mom. I hear people talk about their moms, but 
boy, mine was like gold. So, okay. So do you want to hear what happened the next day? Of there's, course. There's more. There's more. Is this a cliffhanger moment? Yeah. Yes. Oh my gosh. To be continued. Just yes. kidding. So the next day I rally myself. I go in because I need to get remove her things. And I'd had this massive fear all this time about would people care for her? And they tell me Mary died. And I said, what? They said, yeah, Mary died. So, you know, Mary had told me her job. She felt that she was still left on this earth because my mom couldn't speak. She knew all my mom's moans and groans. And and she would get on that buzzer and just buzz and buzz until staff would come and take care of my mom. So Mary passed away. And then I meet a nurse who said, you know, I saw the Bible in your notes next to your mom's bed. And I would come in every night and read to her. And I, I just thought, what an amazing gift for me to meet people and to finally have the knowledge that there were other people in the journey with me. I, I just think it's life is has so many twists and turns, but it was such an affirmation to know that other people cared about my mom like I did. Your earth angels. That's so sweet. Good old Mary just holding down the fort for you. Wow. Goosebumps throughout. Yep. Yes. Oh my gosh. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey guys, Maria here. I am so excited that we're partnering with Learn FTD again for season seven, all about genetics. Rachel and I are thrilled to be exploring this complex topic and have been working hard behind the scenes in preparation. We have scoured the internet for resources, websites, and places to find information. And honestly, we just keep coming back to Learn FTD. You guys, the website is chock full of information all about this season's spotlight of genetics. We are proud to share this space with our community and hope you find their resources to be helpful, effective, and valuable. You can find out more information at www.learnftd.com slash rm. That's learnftd.com slash rm. I had the pleasure of hearing Wanda speak at the Napa Council meeting, which is the Mm. Department of Health and Human Services. They have this National Alzheimer's Project Act meeting. And I love what you said. I'll just kind of paraphrase that, you know, everybody kind of talks about Alzheimer's and then there's the other dementias. Mm. Mm. And Wanda was saying, we're not another. (laughs) You're right. (laughs) The terminology that clinicians and it's different than what researchers use and it's different than what families use. And it's just very difficult when you know that there's a whole underpinning of genetics and science is moving so fast. And yet our culture, our language is still stuck in the bucket that everybody has Alzheimer's. And if you happen to be in the scientific loop, you're really tagged as an other or rare or, you know, not part of the, the dementia team. You're kind of like pushed aside. It's, it's very strange language. And for such an isolating journey to then have that terminology, it's like a punch in the gut. 
you know it's like we're not just an other like our I think family. I have a, a blog idea about this and yes then I'll do it when Wanda's episode airs because okay. that's so true like the language around dementia and all of it okay yep I, I need to yeah. write something down here I'm gonna forget well, <laughs> and and it's language but you have to look at the history the failures have all been wrapped around Alzheimer's right. and how they have tried drugs left and right and nothing has worked because they they just have failed miserably so everyone's out in you know caregiver land going there's no hope there's nothing and then you see these others the the dementias that have some genetic base and exciting work is going on you have you know bluefield providing funding for the progranulin you have the rainwater foundation providing funding for tau and you see all these biomedical pharmaceutical companies coming up with these innovative solutions uh, for genetics you know and they're not all the same some of them have a molecule that's going to raise progranulin some of them want to change the dna and the rna you know so it's like the targets are different they're varied but they they're moving quickly and so right. the, the hope is kind of in the others so to speak in the others now that you look back it's the others that are kind of driving all dementias that was really okay. powerful well i've never I, thought about it like that but it's true because dr bovey you know mm-hmm. who's one of the best he said to us we're ahead of alzheimer's right now we are making huge strides and we keep getting funding because we're making such huge strides. So, but I've just, I've never thought like, how dare they say other? <laughs> oh yes. I, I love when Wanda spoke about that. I was like, yes, because <laughs> we are trying to be that voice in that meeting too. That is very Alzheimer's focused. I mean, it's called the national <laughs> Alzheimer's project act, but it does include quote unquote others. Yeah, it's a strange thing. All of the demographic data, the epidemiological data, all come out with this Alzheimer's and related. And it, it it's like, how can they know that? Because very, very few people ever do their genetics. So how can you have epidemiological studies if you haven't really done the science? You know, yes, the MRI tells you a lot. Yes, the neurocognitive tests, which are not fun, tell you a lot. The spinal fluid tells you a lot. But most people never get spinal fluid. They never get the neurological test. They just get that, you know, oh, yeah, your MRI shows the brain is changing. You probably have Alzheimer's. Oh, you're under 65. It's probably FTD. Right, right. Wow. I'm learning so much today. I wish we could just do a mic drop, but I need to hear about Sarah. Yes. I normally like to know like, where were they born? You know, but I want to start with asking you to describe what she was like as a mom. You know, she was amazing. My dad died when he was 36. So she raised four children alone. And the youngest child was nine months old when my dad passed away. So, you know, she was kind of the rock. But with being Southern, she kind of had that velvet glove, you know, where you didn't cross her. But, you know, the steel magnolia. 
but just kind and gentle. She was such a, a generous person to everyone. Do you know, the sweetest memory I can look back on was she would drop us off at school in the morning and uh, pick us up in the afternoon. And it wasn't until at the end of the school year that she disclosed that she had been taking a little boy who had leukemia and she would drive him to his leukemia appointments. His mom couldn't take him and she never wanted anyone to know it. And I just, I've often thought back to that, that she was a real giver of her time and people confided in her to the point that years after uh, my sisters and I were all married, the boyfriends would all come back to her house to talk with her. <laughs> so she really was an engaging person to, you know, everyone, even the old boyfriends. <laughs> wow. I just want to go back though, to the best kind of people are the ones that do those selfless acts when nobody else is watching and they don't need to Instagram it. I know we're way before Instagram time when we're talking about Sarah, but she didn't need anybody to know. And that, yeah, she didn't need the recognition or like, look at me. I'm so great. She was doing it selflessly. That is so beautiful. I love that story. If you could describe how your mom's love felt like, what would you say? It was rich and it was deep. And there was just a genuine connection. I could tell her anything. I knew at every point in my life that she was my safe haven. If I needed her, she would be there. One of the sad things for me, it's been 35 years since she was gone. And I terribly miss her not having the chance to know my grandchildren now. And just for them to know her because she was, she was all in for anything I needed or wanted. And I mean, you have to understand, she didn't have a job most of her life and how she managed finances, but I never felt that we were deprived. So she managed life beautifully in a very difficult situation. Oh my gosh. I need to step up my mom game. And I I know I'm thinking the same thing. I'm literally like, I greet my children normally. Like, what do you need? (laughs) Okay. So I like the idea of this velvet glove a lot. Did she have, well, I know you mentioned it. So how many siblings did she have? She was from a massive family. So she had nine brothers and sisters. Oh, And were they all similar in personality? They were all very different. Oh, isn't that amazing how that happens? Crazy. I'm from the same family and everybody's so different. Some of them were not very kind. So it was always interesting. It made my mom stand out even more because some of them were kind of on the other end of the spectrum. You know what I love hearing is how amazingly open she was to research I feel like research is a very scary thing and not very approachable, which is kind of why we decided to do our mini series to make it more like real for people. But it, you know, back in the eighties for her to be like, I'll give you anything. I mean, I feel like she's very forward thinking. Is that like fair to say? (laughs) It is fair to say she was forward thinking, but her passion for her family and future generations 
meant everything to her. The family was the number one in her world. And so, you know, it's a nice tie-in that that she would care that much. And I think one of the the nice things for me is that her name's Sarah Nell. No one knew me, her cousins, her second cousins, her third cousins, they didn't know me. I, I, you know, I was really a nobody, but just the mention of her name, Sarah Nell brought such credibility, you know, and such an instant connection that when I would call basically strangers, you know, double third cousin removed times, whatever. And I would mention her name and they would just open up with such warmth and say, sure, I'm happy to come to this reunion or sure, if you want to have that nurse, just tell her to come by my house. I'll give blood. Sure. You're Sarah Nell's daughter. So it was really sweet to have her name carry so much credibility and love. I want to talk about you for a second, Wanda. Now, I feel like this is like your God-given talent to be this advocate. What does that do for you and like your connection to your mom? Like, has this given you peace to continue to fight for answers? Does it bring you, I don't know, some comfort, you know, when you hear of these breakthroughs? Like, what has your advocacy really meant to you and like your relationship with your mom? Wow, that's really good, Maria. I, you know, it it means it was worth it. Her life had so much value. And I don't know, it's just kind of, um, you know, the old slogan, it says, so what now what, you know, what now, what do I do? How do you make lemonade out of something that is so painful and so tragic? And so I think seeing my mom make lemonade just inspired me to keep making lemonade. And when discoveries happen and when people, the light bulb goes on and families find their genetics, I get so excited because I know that they're making lemonade. They're finally getting hopefully to, you know, an all FTD program or a a research center that's doing something that will, you know, maybe give them hope for the future. Because I do think hope is on the horizon. It's coming. I'm feeling like you're similar to your mom and that Rachel and I are never going to know the lengths that you've gone to, to help research. Cause you only dropped in a few nuggets about family reunions and blood draws, but I know that there's so much that you're doing and I just want to say thank you. And what a beautiful tribute to your mom. And I I feel the same. It's how could we not do something when the these incredible people lost their life because of this terrible disease. How could we not turn this into something and use our voice? I just think you're amazing. I second it. Okay. How do you think Sarah would like to be remembered? She would like to be remembered as fun and loving her family, truly devoted to those around her. So we're going to get to hear Sarah's words. I'm very excited. Can you tell us what you have chosen to read today? Well, it's been kind of a family joke, basically. My mom had this rectangular card that had words and she put it behind the sink. And, uh, you know, every time you wash dishes, this little cardboard card would get splattered with water. And so it was a green card. 
I now own it. My siblings all gave me the right to be the one to keep it. But it's a quote that people live by a lot. And knowing that it was the one thing that she held on to, she had it in her bedroom when she moved in with me. And it was something that she looked at and read all the time. So it is the God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And so I think that's more powerful than her words that she has written to me because those were the words that I kind of think she lived by. And they're not easy words to live by. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We release new episodes each week on Tuesdays, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you want to connect with us, you can follow us on Instagram at Remember Me Podcast. You can visit our website, RememberMeFTD.com, for more information on FTD, resources, and ways to support our podcast like joining Remembers Only. This podcast is produced by Maria Kent Pierce and Rachel Martinez, and the beautiful music you hear is a song called So Damn Lucky by Bailey Kent.